very excited, very excited because we are going to be wrapping up our time in the Decalogue. We're still in the book of Exodus, but for those of you that haven't been with us, the Decalogue is really the proper name for the Ten Commandments. Um, Decalogue simply means ten words or ten sayings. That is because in Hebrew and to the Israelites, these wouldn't have been merely commandments as if they were something you could say, okay, don't do that, check, don't do this, check, but rather were sayings or words that constituted life under the rule and reign of Yahweh, their God. And so the Decalogue has rightly so been a, an important important uh, figure in the life of faithful Israelites and faithful Christians because truly the sum of all of the law of Moses is found in the Decalogue and you can even sum up the Decalogue again with two commandments which we'll see today but we get to finish the uh, Ten Commandments right before we start a, an Advent series next week. So next week we're going to be studying the book of Ruth for Advent. And so it's quite fitting that this lined up as our last commandment to, uh, to deal with this morning. And so I want us to kind of prepare ourselves for the nature of this one. If you've uh, if you remember, as we've, we've worked our way through the Ten Commandments, we've um, established that there's somewhat of an order of priority to them. There's two tables in, within the Decalogue. The first table is the first four commandments. The second table is the next six. The first four commandments deal with our vertical relation to God, while the latter six deal with our horizontal and there is a sense of primacy or priority of the commandments, starting with the first and ending with the last. But what I don't want you to think is that because this is the last one, it is somehow less important or somehow does not matter. And what I hope to show you today is that they actually, this commandment actually serves as a summarization, as a final exclamation point to the entire Decalogue. And I hope that we can see that today. And so this final word of the ten words is most certainly fitting in our conclusion of the Ten Commandments because it comes to us today just like it came to Israel long ago as the final arrow of righteousness drawn and released at the heart of transgression and lawlessness. And so truly in this commandment, we see not only the depth of our idolatry, but we see the good design of God in how he has ordered the world. All that is bound in this one commandment. And so if you would, please, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's law. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey 
or anything that is your neighbor's. Let us pray. Father, holy are you. May you be exalted in our midst this morning, and may you truly be sanctified in our hearts as we look to your word. I pray that we would see your righteous standard, and rather than shrinking away from it or trying to excuse ourselves from it, I pray that your word would reach deep within us by the power of the Spirit, that you would sanctify us, that you would purge us of our misconceptions and our preconceived notions, and that we would abandon ourselves before the light and truth of your word, that you would be magnified and glorified, and that you would have your will and your way before us today. Lord, worthy are you, and worthy is your word to be the standard for all of faith and life. Please have your way among us this morning and conform us to the image of Christ through the power of your word. We pray and ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so I have two, or excuse me, three points that will work within. They're going to help shape and frame our time in the, the, the text this morning. And the first one, I don't want to spend the most amount of time on. However, it this commandment is completely unusual for several, for several reasons compared to the rest of them. And so this first point is the nature of the house. The nature of the house. With the exception of the fifth commandment, and even then it's, it's really just a hint, which is honor your father and your mother. There is no other commandment that sets up a framework of the household, the covenant household. The fifth commandment alludes to it and speaks to authority, but it doesn't speak to the entirety of the covenant household, whereas this commandment presupposes it. And so it comes to us this morning, and it has been translated from the original language, which is Hebrew, to read, first, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And then comes the list of what's in the house, okay? That's incredibly important for us this morning. And it's going to help frame the rest of the sermon. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and this, this is important, and so we do need to keep this in mind. Okay, the Septuagint does switch the order. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and then the list then begins with house, okay? The reason that is important is because uh, the Septuagint is what most of the New Testament authors used when they quoted the Old Testament, okay? So when you read the New Testament and Paul quotes verbatim the Old, he's nine times out of ten quoting the Septuagint. Jesus also used the Septuagint, and so... It's important, but it doesn't change, I think, the, the emphasis here on the household. So I do not believe that the Septuagint's reordering invalidates what I'm going to be arguing for now. And, it, and it's this, that the emphasis on the household and who is the head of the household is presupposed in the commandment, and it shapes how we understand the commandment. All right? 
And regardless of the order, that emphasis remains. Why? Because even with the reordering, the commandment still reads, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The commandment presupposes that in a real and meaningful way, the wife belongs to the husband. Okay? Therefore, this, as I've said, this final commandment of the ten implies a particular household order that we must not only recognize, but we must follow. And again, I don't want to spend much time on this. I want to deal with the commandment proper. But this is what Paul says in light of the creation order from 1 Corinthians 11 in verses 3 and in verses 8. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. And again in verse 8 he says, for a man was not made from woman but woman from man. He even says that man was not made for woman, but woman for man. So we have ample evidence from the scriptures that what is being presupposed in the commandment is indeed that the husband is the head of this covenant household. God has even made the world in such a way, as seen in creation, that men are the heads of households. And again, I don't want to spend, we're not going to spend much time on this, but this frames everything going forward. And so while this law is given for all and comes down and bears on all, the language of the law is not accidental. It's written to the heads of households to not sin against other heads of households. This is why the commandment doesn't say, do not covet your neighbor's husband but rather it targets men as heads of house because men are covenantally responsible to their households and this commandment bears on all by way of the covenant head so it comes through the head to all and is authoritative over every single person in this room and if to unpack this a little, the covenant household is how God has primarily built the world and it's how he primarily relates to and communicates with us. I'll give you two examples and then we'll move on. We see this both large scale and small scale. Large scale is this, okay, that God relates to us with covenantal building blocks, okay? Large scale proof. Adam, from the beginning, Adam, serves as the covenant head of the household of humanity. This is why the Bible says plainly, in Adam all die. We have been born of Adam's stock. Therefore, we all die. Adam broke covenant with God. Therefore, his entire posterity, that means every, every person who has come from his loins, which is all of us, his entire posterity has been born outside of covenant with God. Because of his rebellious deed, he was removed from covenant, and we're now all born outside of covenant. His, the consequences of that action can't simply be reversed. Okay, They can't be undone in 
some in the sense that we just ignore what has happened because the effects are inevitable. Because we are born in Adam, our nature is corrupt. Therefore, we sin and we break covenant. This is true for everyone. You are born outside of fellowship with God before you ever commit sin because you come from Adam. This is all because of covenant. Our covenant head of humanity broke covenant with God and therefore we're all born doomed. Our nature is corrupt. Okay, that's the large scale evidence. Small scale. Small picture. The marriage covenant is an authentic microcosm of the new covenant in Christ. Thus, husbands are instructed to love their wives like Christ loves the church, and wives are called to obey their husbands. In this small covenant, primarily between two people, right? There's a household involved, but, it's, but it begins with two people. In this smallest covenant, we see how a husband leads and loves his wife is a microcosmic picture of how Christ leads and loves his wife, the church. The pictures are inseparable, okay? Regardless of how terribly a husband leads his home, he's still communicating something. And their responsibility is still his to model Jesus. Why? Because this is how God relates to us. This is how he has formed the world. And so this commandment comes to us in its fullness by way of seeing the world and seeing our neighbors within the structures God has made. And we're going to unpack some of this. So if we understand the nature of the household structure and we put it in its proper place to covet anything inside of a household is not just to simply commit some isolated private act of sin, but you're actually sinning against the head of that house. When you want your neighbor's spouse or his house or car or wealth you are truly sinning against him, whether he knows it or not. In the same way, in the same way, when a member of a household sins, say a daughter of mine sins, the head of that household, me, is responsible for that sin, even if I did not commit the offense. There's a difference between responsibility and guilt. But nevertheless, God has ordered the world in such a way that these household structures are the building blocks of our world and how we relate to one another within the home and without the home. And so, this frames everything and I think we'll now see the emphasis on our neighborliness and how it's inextricably linked. You cannot covet and not hurt your neighbor. And so this now shows us the heart of the commandment this morning. 
and the heart of the commandment is that it deals with the heart. Covetousness is unlike any other of the commandments in that it is confined within the heart. And just so I'm not assuming anything, to covet, if you're not familiar with that word, is to desire something, to want something that's not yours. It's to take pleasure in something or desire satisfaction from something that is not yours. It does not belong to you. Okay? And so the command is quite, quite straightforward. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff or anything that he is responsible for. But it doesn't really end there. and We're going to see that why. We, we can't confine it to just what my neighbor owns. But listen to this. Notice how every other commandment regards something either seen or heard. Even the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Even the first commandment has an immediate effect on how one lives their life before God and before others. In the ancient world, it would have been obvious that this was an, uh, a visible demonstration of worship. Everything was visible. We live in a world now that has unfortunately been, a, our thinking's been a bit corrupt by the Enlightenment. We privatize everything. We think that you know, rationalism and enlightenment thinking have, have absolutely ruined Christianity for much of the West. We think everything is this personalized experience that no one can speak to and that there's no corporate nature to being in the church. That's patently false according to the Bible. Everything is a corporate scale but still personal because people belong to the bigger picture. The nation of Israel had people. The church which is the bride corporate, is constituted with people. So there's this inseparability, inseparability between what is communal and what is individual. They go together. And so we have to remove this thinking that somehow if I just think and have this you know, personalized experience that Yahweh is my God, that's sufficient. That's not, that wouldn't be the case. No Jew would have thought that when this was given to them from Sinai. They would have understood that this demands public worship. This demands public obedience. This demands a public life. And so all of the commands, one through nine, deal with public life, except this one. This one aims right at the heart. Right at the heart. And then... It doesn't stop there, but it connects the heart to public life. They're inextricably connected. The Tenth Commandment has no visible component to it. To covet something is to desire it. It's simply a feeling. In truth, the Tenth Commandment is a prohibition against evil desires of the heart. So if someone were brazen enough to believe that they could uphold the fullness of the Decalogue, this commandment would quickly put them on their knees. One could, one could possibly deceive themselves into thinking that they are law keepers 
if they were to treat the Ten Commandments as a sort of checklist, like we mentioned earlier, they could, you could imagine someone going like, well, is Yahweh my God? Yeah, check. Have I ever worshipped a carved image? No, check. Have I ever murdered anyone? No, check. The list goes so on and so forth until you get to this commandment. Have you ever desired your neighbor's wife? Have you ever wanted his possessions or his comforts? Have you ever desired anything of his? Or have you ever desired to have a life like his? Guilty. Who's escaping that? No one. No one. So when one sees that God applies his standard of love, of purity, and of righteousness to the heart, they will soon realize that they are guilty before him. James, Jesus' half-brother, says that if you have broken one law, just one, you've broken them all. Breaking one law means you're a lawbreaker. Who can escape that? It's in this respect that the Tenth Commandment serves as a type of spiritual skeleton or a, or a root, if you will, to the other commandments. Because the other commandments all first start in the heart themselves. Okay, James again, makes this very clear for us. In James chapter 4, he says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James makes it crystal clear for us this morning that every sin committed outwardly is truly the fruit of the hidden sin of covetousness. You murder because you hate, and you hate because you covet. You commit adultery, and you steal because you want what is not yours. You bear false witness because you desire comfort and control more than you love the truth. In a truly substantive way, this commandment serves as the summation of the entire Decalogue. One could rightly say, and so I will say it, we covet because we do not love. We covet because we do not love. And so this brings us to the last and biggest point this morning in that it's this to covet is truly a sin against God and against neighbor 
And so we're going to work our way backwards from the second table towards the first table of the Decalogue right now. And we're going to see how this commandment speaks to both tables. Remember, as I said earlier, there are two tables for the Ten Commandments. First four commandments relate are how we relate to God, and the last six are how we relate to one another. But the second table is sourced from the first, okay? They're inseparable. But we're going to work our way. We're going to start with the Tenth Commandment and work our way backwards. As I alluded to earlier, we are so self-absorbed that we tend to think of people or things as isolated objects that are up for grabs. So much so that we first believe that to desire what another has is no sin at all. And secondly, we convince ourselves that taking what is theirs is some sort of competition or sport. I mean, the most depraved in our society do this with people's spouses, okay? This isn't a hypothetical. This actually happens. People think getting something from another is a game and that the strongest is the victor. But as we have established, God has not constituted the world in such a way that things exist in and of themselves, but everything belongs to something. Remember, covenant household structures. People and objects primarily belong to an order called the household. And that household has a head. So covetousness is inextricably linked to how one views and treats their neighbor. This isn't so obvious to us in modernity because consumerism controls our world, right? We have access to almost anything we could ever want. 25 years ago, not that long ago, but 25 years ago, it would have been unheard of, unheard of to order clothes, tools, furniture, even your groceries online. Half of us didn't even know what online meant. And those that did have the internet well, you had to unplug your phone <laughs> and wait about 10 minutes for dial-up to go through. You would get on chat messenger and realize, well, this is lonely. No one else is here. And you'd get off. <laughs> that, was, that was the Internet, okay? Today, you have access to anything you want. You can steal your neighbor's spouse, so to speak, through the Internet. And so for us, we have these privatized experiences where we think because we're hidden in a room in our home that somehow we're not committing sin against neighbor. But that's not true. We no longer need our neighbor to see the latest and the greatest. Keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak, looks a lot different today than it did 25 years ago. But it's the same sin. The insatiable desire to obtain what we don't have is still and always will be a sin against our neighbor. 
This is because covetousness sets one's desires and delights on oneself. We covet because we love ourselves more than we love God and neighbor. The law's intent has always been to promote love from a pure heart. And that love must be directed towards God and neighbor, or else it's not love. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. A scribe was just that, someone who their job was to take manuscripts of the Bible and make copies of them. They literally wrote scripture all day, or they would write things down for the the Pharisees or Sadducees, but primarily they knew the Bible because they copied it all day. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, so he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most, most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus is quoting directly from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 and also in Leviticus 19 which our reading from the law this morning would have taken us there if I continued. This is the sum of the law, all of it. And this is even the point of the Ten Commandments. We have to stretch our thinking a little bit because we read the, the Ten Commandments, we read the Decalogue, and we think these are just negative statements. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. And we just assume It's some restrictive, punitive law. But even though it is written in negative statements, the emphasis is nevertheless love, purity, and righteousness. Here's why. The commandments are written in such a way to make plain and explicit what holy living is not. Or in other words, they're written so that we know what love is not, so that we know what love is. If the only commandment ever written in the scriptures was to love God and love your neighbor, we would have as many different interpretations of the law as we have people. But God deals in the specifics so that we know what is true. We have to see what love is not in order to know what love is. We have to see what purity is not in order to know what purity is. We have to see what righteousness is not in order to know what righteousness is. Because of our corrupt nature, which I I alluded to earlier, Our disposition is always, always to twist God's words and cause them to serve us rather than us serving the word. It's only in Christ and the gift of the Spirit 
that we begin to see the scriptures for what they are. They become illuminated to us, and the power of them lands right where it should, here and here. But left to our Adamic state, we will only twist the scriptures. This is why thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people read the Bible, but they don't belong to Christ. So they twist it for their own selfish gain. But the law is clear. It tells us what we ought not to do so that we know what we ought to do. Therefore, to covet is to love oneself over and above your neighbor, regardless if the object in question belongs to them or not. Here's a short list, a little shotgun blast throughout the scriptures just to make this point clear. Psalm 37, the wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Proverbs 21, all day long he craves and craves, talking about the wicked. All day long the wicked craves and craves. Sounds like covetousness, does it not? But the righteous gives and does not hold back. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You can't render good works when the object of your heart is yourself. Luke 12 Someone in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to them, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I'm not going to read it, but he goes on to tell a parable. I suggest you read it. This is in Luke 12. He says a rich man was so impressed, basically, about all the stuff he had, he said, well, I've got all these things and my barns are overflowing. I should build more barns so that I can shove everything in them and store my stuff. There's no neighbor involved in this parable. It's just this guy with his stuff. And Jesus says, you fool, tonight your life is required of you. This is the parable he gives in light of this teaching about covetousness. My point is, we covet and we break God's law even when we have no neighbor in sight, no particular neighbor. But we're always sinning against our neighbor when we do covet. 1 Corinthians 10, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. In Christ, we are called to receive the riches of God's grace. And from there, we then are called to bless others from the overflow of all that we have received. We receive and then we give. Nothing is ours to begin with. Paul says to the church at Corinth, he literally says, what do you have that you haven't received? He says it in passing, but I love that. What do you have? What do I have that we haven't received? Is it all not a gift? 
So why do we lust after things that we don't own? Why? We're called to love our neighbor as ourself. Covetousness is the antithesis of that. John writes, the Apostle John writes that we love because he first loved us. Covetousness denies others the love that Christ has first poured out for us. When we covet, we are refusing to render unto our neighbor the good deeds that Christ has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. That's Ephesians 2. But as you've probably picked up by now, not only is covetousness a sin against our neighbor, it is ultimately a sin against God. Remember, we're working our way to that first table. When we covet, we are committing idolatry. For we are exalting someone or something that we do not have as a means of fulfillment and satisfaction. When we covet, we either believe that this person or this thing will give us something that God can't give us. Or we believe that what he has given is insufficient. Thus, we question his goodness and his kindness towards us. It is for this very reason that Paul writes twice to the church at Ephesus and the church at Colossae. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and then he says this, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. To Colossae, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put this to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The Apostle Paul makes it so plain to us that when we covet, we commit the sin of idolatry. It is a sin against God because we have worshipped a lesser God. And so covetousness, which is idolatry, is simply another form of unbelief. We covet because we functionally don't believe the promises and gifts of God are ours. And we don't believe that the promises and gifts are ours because we functionally don't trust God is enough and that his word is true. This is the sin at heart. And this is why I contend with you now that this commandment is the summation of them all. Because it's aimed at your heart. Everything is sourced there. 
Nothing is hidden before God. There is no such thing as hidden private sin. But all is exposed before him and all will be rendered before him on the last day. So as we conclude, what then is the cure for our covetous idolatry? What is the cure? The author of Hebrews says this. Keep, Hebrews 13, verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The cure for covetousness is simply this, believing that God is with us and he is enough. I don't need more money. I don't need more stuff. I don't need a different spouse or different kids. But everything I have has been graciously given by the hand of God. Every blessing and every curse, every moment of health, every affliction, every circumstance is from him. He gives and he takes away. He kills and he makes alive. It's all from him. And so that is our hope. That is our hope. That he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. We don't need things, beloved, when we have him. And so, furthermore, we have seen that this final commandment to not covet is in truth a commandment like the others. It's a charge, a call for us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. Let us not be those who have received the grace of God in vain, but let us believe, taking him at his word, that his divine power has granted us everything we need for life and godliness. He is with us, beloved. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning that you did not withhold heaven's finest, but you sent your son to be a propitiation for us all. And Lord, we have not deserved any of the grace or the love that you have displayed to us and have shed abroad in our hearts. None of it is because we merit anything but all of it is from grace and mercy. And so I pray that you would stir within us truly hearts of thanksgiving, hearts of joy, remembering that we love because you first loved us and that we have everything we need in the Messiah. Lord, please teach us to trust you and to abide in you our life 
must not consist in the love of things, but rather consists in belonging to you and enjoying the present, the power and the peace of your presence with us all the days of our lives as we wait for that blessed day to see you face to face. Lord, please produce this in us this morning and may we be truly the sheep of your pasture, the people of your possession. In Christ's name I pray these things, amen.